Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I have a confession to make. Um, I, I like 007 in the whole James Bond series. I probably shouldn't. I mean, it's, it's probably not something that I should, uh, I should embrace uh, with my Christian character. But, uh, and I'm going to, this may be the most offensive thing I say today. Roger Moore is my favorite Bond. I know there's some Sean Connery fans, and uh, some of you may even like Timothy Dalton. Uh, if you do, that may be cause for excommunication. Uh, but uh, Roger Moore is my favorite, although Daniel Craig is a little bit non-traditional, and he's really done a good job with the later movies as well. So, so the verdict's still out for him. Um, I don't know what it is, but we, we love a good spy story. And whether it's the old 60s and 70s sitcom sort of spy movies and spy sitcom shows, or whether it's the, the latest blockbuster, we, we love them. And if you were to ask Ian Fleming, who has made a few dollars off of the James Bond series, he would probably quickly say, yeah, people love a good spy movie. Um, I'm sure that the, in the real world, the world of espionage is nothing like the movies, but I imagine that the CIA, MI6, uh, those groups probably got plenty, plenty of tricks up their sleeve that they really can't tell us very much about. I think that's why Joshua chapter 2 is probably one of the most well-known chapters in the book of Joshua because it comes to us with a good old-fashioned spy story. Uh, it chronicles two Israelite spies. It talks about Rahab, and so you've got the Bond girl in the movie uh, here in the chapter. She's a woman of mystery and intrigue, and she's, a, she's one of those bad girls of the Bible as well. It's one that's got a lot of adventure and excitement in it. Now, Joshua 2 may not have any fancy cars with machine guns in the front bumper or any exploding wristwatches, but like I said, in my mind movie, this is a really cool chapter that's played out here with these two Israelite spies and Rahab in Jericho. But in spite of it being a spy story, it's also a story of faith. It's a story of God's grace at work. And it's a story that asks us to hold up a mirror and give us a lot to think about. Now, you say, I, I'm not much of an Israelite spy or any kind of a spy, but that's okay. These things, this, the way it challenges our faith is certainly a place for us to connect with the story. With that being said, I want us to go ahead and jump in. I was going to do like the James Bond theme song and everything, but I knew that on YouTube that would flag us with copyright violations and all kinds of stuff, and, and so we just decided to go plain Jane this morning. But let's go ahead and jump into our text here in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read just the, the first part of the chapter. We're going to talk about the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read aloud the first part. So if you're able, and would you please stand with me as I read Joshua chapter 2, beginning there in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I, didn't, I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof 
and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will do kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Father, I thank you for this incredible story that we receive here in Joshua chapter two. I thank you for the way that it challenges our faith, the way it even challenges our ethics and our morality. God, help us to understand it well and that we would be men and women who walk by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I think you could be seated. So this begins with Joshua sending two spies into the promised land. Now, if you understand your Old Testament, you know that Israel has used spies before. And in the past, when they've used those spies, well, let's just say that the spying didn't go so well in Israel's history. The first time they approached the promised land, they, they sent 12 spies to check out the land. And again, it didn't work out so well. And so Joshua chose to send two spies to Jericho this time. Now, I can't help but think that's a symbolic act because how many spies came back faithful? Two. And so Joshua, instead of sending a whole regiment of spies, just sent two, the number who were faithful on the first go-round. And so the two spies are headed straight for Jericho. And upon arriving in Jericho, they made a, a quick stop at the house of Rahab. Now, if you read this and you think, well, what in the world were they doing at Rahab's house? Because after all, she wasn't, a, uh, she wasn't a, a hotel operator, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't that she was uh, the, the welcoming committee, or perhaps she was the welcoming com- committee. But why they went there first, you can use your imaginations. It may have simply been geography. They may have chosen to stop at Rahab's house because it was the first place they encountered. We know Rahab's house was built into the wall, and so uh, maybe her house was the closest house to their, their pathway, but we're dealing with espionage here. And so geography is not all that interesting. And so maybe there was another reason that they stopped at Rahab's house. And maybe it was very much a strategic decision. This was a place where travelers might stop for a break. The, you know, I, I think of, of the interstate and you see these seedy establishments on the interstate that, that invite people to, to stop. There's plenty of, plenty of parking here at these places. I mean, it's like you, you imagine that sort of idea. But these spies, well, let's just say they're not the very best at espionage because they not, not so much as get into the promised land that their presence alerts the king. They're not there. They're, they're, their presence is not secret. The king is very much aware of their presence. And so, again, in your mind movie, if you're imagining these two Israelite spies, maybe a low-altitude jump out of a stealthy aircraft, 
no, that's not happening here. Maybe an amphibious approach in a black boat with black wetsuits. You know, they're, they're jumping off and getting in the Jordan. Maybe, maybe that's in your mind movie. And again, that seems unlikely as well. At the very least, you certainly hope these guys tried to blend in. Like they didn't have t-shirts on that said, we're with Joshua, right? I mean, you hope they, they tried to blend in when they got there into Jericho. So in true spy thriller fashion, again, in my mind movie, I imagine there's a mole in Rahab's house. Somebody saw him and somebody went and ratted him out. That's, that's how this plays out in my mind movie. But again, that's speculation. We don't know that that's the case or not. But you know the story from this point on. Rahab hides the men on the roof. And then she sets up a, a misdirection with the authorities. We'll talk about that in just a minute. One thing Rahab is very evident about is that she's been paying attention. She's been watching current events. She knows what's happening. She knows what's going on on the other side of the Jordan River. She knows that there's a, a hostile force that has gathered on the other side of the Jordan River. And I imagine, again, just what I understand about Rahab and her profession, she's probably heard many confessions whispered in her ear. She knows what's, taken, what's about to take place. She recognizes that her city is in jeopardy, and she knows who is ultimately going to be responsible for it. Again, it's not that Israel is so much of a daunting military force. We talked about this last week, that Joshua's got his hands full. He doesn't just have an army. He's got an army and everything with him, like all their wives and all their children and all their, all their older folks that, that aren't fighting age anymore. Joshua doesn't just have an elite fighting force. He's not going in with spec ops of, of the Jewish nation. He's going in with everybody, Right? So it's not that they're just a, a, a mighty, daunting military force. Rahab's already declared that there's a God named Yahweh who fights on their behalf. She understands. She understands perhaps better than anybody. And so what does she do? She enters into a negotiation with these two men. Their protection for her deliverance. She won't rat them out if they promise to rescue her and her family from destruction. And they do just that. They promise to take care of her and her family. They promise to protect her if she promises to keep up her end of the bargain. And you've got to admire Rahab's commitment to her family here. When she starts making this deal, notice that she's not, she's not asking for her own safety. Instead, when she's negotiating the terms of this deal, she's worried about who? Her mama and her daddy her brothers and her sisters. She's worried about her entire family. And you've got to just really appreciate the fact that she is looking out for the welfare of her family. We always need to remember, we're quick to judge this subculture of our society, but we always need to remember that the young ladies who enter into these professions, many times they're doing so not because they enjoy it, not because the money is good. They do so because they're looking desperately to provide for the needs of their family. We need to remember that. Truth is, there's a lot of young ladies even today that feel trapped in industries like this because they entered in trying to provide for the needs of their family. It's also a good place to point out one of the great moral questions in the Bible. People read this and they think, they think man, these Christians, they read this Bible, but, but Rahab, she was a, she's not a clean character, is she? Joshua so far is clean. We don't see anything that's suspect about Joshua. He's not entered into any gross sin or immorality. I mean, we see those characters from time to time where, where they generally seem like they're clean. But Rahab is anything but clean. We know what she does for a living. We know she's, uh, she's definitely an interesting character. We also know, based on this story, that she's what? She's a liar. 
right? I mean, she's playing the Bond girl right. I mean, she's, she's playing the part. She's lying to protect these spies. And, and as Christians, we read this and say, oh, we've got a problem on our hands because she lies, but does God honor her lie? I mean, let's tease this out a little bit more. How do we handle this? Is the Bible here saying that lying is justifiable as long as the ends justify the means, right? I mean, as long as, it, as long as the outcome is good, you can lie like the devil as long as the outcome is good. Is that really what the Bible is teaching here? It's, I think what we find here is that Rahab finds herself in the middle of a moral choice, and that moral choice that she has to face is too often part and parcel of living in a fallen world. We live in this terrible fallen world where there's sin everywhere. I mean, if you don't understand Rahab's moral choice, just wait till election time and you have to choose between two candidates on a ballot. And if you're thinking well about these candidates, you look at them and you say, man, I know some things about this person and I know some things about this person and I don't know that I want either of them babysitting my kids. But when you vote, what do you have to do? You gotta choose one. You gotta choose one. We call that what? Choosing between the lesser of two evils. I mean, that, that's so often how we as Christians have to, have to engage, even at the ballot boxes, is choosing between the lesser of two evils. James Olson was the director of counterintelligence for the CIA. He's also a Christian. Uh, he wrestled with the moral quandary of spycraft and espionage, and he actually discussed this passage in a recent interview. Spying has always been based on deception, he said. Thanks to Rahab, the spies survive when the king's men come looking for them. She lied about their whereabouts. They were able to return to safety with the Israelite camp, and I think it was because of their intelligence to a large extent that the campaign was successful. I disagree with Mr. Olson there because they didn't need any intelligence. God took care of Jericho without any intelligence whatsoever on behalf of these spies. He goes on, though. He says, I ask myself, all right, we know that Rahab is one of the greatest heroines of Israel, and if spying were inherently evil, why would she be honored and blessed for protecting the spies? So that gives me a lot of consolation. That gives me a lot of belief that what I'm doing is morally justified because there's biblical history there. And this is a, this is a Christian who has worked in our, uh, our, counter, or our intelligence uh, departments. He's written a couple books that kind of help to answer the question. So if it's something that intrigues you, look up Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, or To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. But again, ultimately Rahab finds herself having to choose between the lesser of two evils. I think the thing we as Christians need to remember is this. God didn't need Rahab's lie to save the spies. God didn't need that lie. He didn't need that deception to save those spies. If God's desire was to save those spies, he was more than cap capable of delivering them in some other way. And the other thing we need to remember is this. It wasn't Rahab's lie that saved her. She was not delivered because of her lie. She was delivered because of her faith. And that's what she's recognized for later on in the Bible. And, and we, we've been here. You remember when you were young in the faith? Did you get it right 100% of the time? No, no. I mean, I think of when I was young in the faith, I tripped over myself way more than I walked straight. And so Rahab doesn't get this part right. However, they strike this deal. The spies return to Joshua for a full report. And then the stage is set for what become the battle of Jericho. Here's what's amazing about Rahab's story, though. The Bible doesn't zero in on her moral failings. 
I mean, again, we could talk about our moral failings because we know. We have enough insight to understand the, the, the moral misgivings of this woman. But instead, the Bible recognizes her as a woman of great faith. And what an encouragement to us today that, that you've got your laundry list of mistakes, your laundry list of misgivings. You may not be like Rahab, but you've got a whole list of things. And trust me, the devil likes to bring those up from time to time, doesn't he? The, the accuser of the brethren likes to drag up the mistakes and the missteps and the misgivings and the things that you've done wrong in your life. But the Bible doesn't zero in on Rahab's mistakes. Instead, the Bible recognizes her as a woman of great faith. She's recognized as a hero of the faith. In our faith hall of fame, the, the, the place in the Bible that lists the people who, who made such a huge impact in the Old Testament from a faith standpoint, Rahab is, is highlighted there. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Perhaps even more importantly, Rahab shows up, well, she shows up in a particularly significant genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. It turns out that she is part of Jesus' line. And so our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his earthly genealogy can trace its way back through for lack of better terms, the hole in the wall in the city of Jericho. But what does this teach us? What is this passage ultimately about? And I think ultimately this passage teaches us that true faith must be active faith. True faith must be active faith. And we understand Rahab's faith. We've been talking about Rahab's faith. Rahab has been listening. Rahab has been paying attention. And she, in this declaration that she gives us in Rahab, or in Joshua chapter 2, she tells us about her faith in the God of Israel. She's confident in the God of Israel. There's no questions in her mind. She's not looking and thinking, thinking our God of Jericho is going to give your God a run for his money. There's no question like that. Rahab looks at the God of Israel and says, this is, where, this is where my faith is. This is who's going to deliver us. This is where salvation is found. It is found in the God of Israel. It is found in Yahweh. And because she has faith in the God of Israel, she puts that faith to work. But not just in Rahab. There's a more silent character in Joshua chapter 2. But he's still there. And, of course, we're talking about Joshua. Well, what does Joshua do? I mean, we just encounter him on the front end. We don't really encounter him much in this, in this passage. What does Joshua do? Joshua sends spies to Jericho. Is that an act of faith? Well, understand this. God had promised Joshua victory, but God did not give Joshua the pathway to victory. He told Joshua, everywhere your foot touches is yours. It's all, it's, you got it. You are, this, is, this is yours. You're going you're gonna to win. And so God had promised Joshua victory, but what did Joshua have to do? He had to go fight. He had to go fight. He had to go about normal wartime strategies because he didn't have a strategy. God didn't say yet, hey, Joshua, here's what's going to happen. We're going to part the Jordan River at flood time. You're going to go march around Jericho a few times. You're going to stumble a little bit. AI is going to kick your tail for a minute, but you're going to go back and kick AI's tail. God didn't give him that pathway. Didn't exist yet. And so Joshua, being a good leader, a good general, a good military strategist, we know what he does. He goes about conquering the promised land as any other strategist would. God promised victory, but God did not give him the strategy. And so Joshua then begins working on what this needs to look like. The bottom line is this. Joshua is ready to do what God has called him to do, and he takes the steps necessary to make it happen. 
Some have argued that this is faithlessness on the part of Joshua. Joshua, you're such a man of weak faith. Why don't you just go conquer that city instead of sending those spies over there? I mean, you saw what happened the last time we sent spies into the promised land. It didn't go well for you. Joshua, are you a man of faith or not? Just go conquer the promised land, Joshua. Actually, I think what Joshua here is showing us is true wisdom. He's showing us wisdom. He's using the means at his disposal. This is not an unfaithful act. It is a very wise act. One commentator said this, to pray without using the means that God has given us is almost as foolish as using the means God has given us without praying. Think about that. To pray without using the means God has given us is almost as foolish as using the means God has given us without praying. Joshua's got the means. He's got the military enterprise in place, so he deploys it in a way that makes sense, in a way that seems prudent. And so Joshua believes God, and so in order to prove that he believes God, what's he do? He starts to put his situation room together. He puts, starts to put his, 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 his headquarters in place. He starts to gather the intelligence needed so that they know what to do. He starts to do all of these things that a good strategist, a good military general would do. Now, we eventually learn that spying is unnecessary in terms of putting together a battle strategy because the plan God gives them for Jericho is, is crazy. I mean, it goes down in history as one of the craziest military strategies that's ever happened, and we'll talk more about it when we get there, but I mean, archaeologists have said, you know, that they're marching in sequence around the city that created seismic issues, that when the, when the trumpets sounded, that they had created such a, such a mess in the foundation of Jericho that it all came tumbling down, and people try to explain this. You don't have to explain it away. God took the city of Jericho down, and that's what happened, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Joshua, however, takes steps to realize God's calling and promise in his life. And the lesson that Joshua has for us here and the lesson that Rahab has for us here is that we as God's people need to make sure that our faith is active and not passive. Uh, maybe we can see it better in the old story that, that was told of the man who was trapped during a flood. We've seen a lot of flooding this summer, so hopefully this story hasn't played itself out in real life. But you know this story. It's a parable of sorts. As the water began to rise to the man's doorstep, a man in a canoe came by and offered to rescue him. The man said, I've been praying, and I know God is going to rescue me. As the waters reached the first floor of his home, a man in a motorboat came by, offered to rescue him. And the man replied, I've been praying, and I know that God is going to rescue me. As the waters reached the top floor of his house, a displaced man climbed onto the roof of his home and a helicopter came by and offered to rescue him. And the man replied, I've been praying and I know that God is going to rescue me. What happens next? The man drowns. He stands before the Lord and he petitions him. He said, Lord, I prayed for you to rescue me and you let me down. And God said, no, I sent a canoe, a motorboat, and a helicopter to rescue you and you ignored all three. Faith must be faith in action. It requires us to act upon it. God called Joshua to go to Canaan, to go to the promised land, and so Joshua did what was necessary to begin to make that happen, and eventually God's going to blow his mind with the plan. I mean, God's going to, I imagine that in the war room, in the strategy room, Joshua's already figured out how he's going to cross a flooded river. Like, I imagine that's what's happening. And so God's going to blow his mind with what he's going to do here, but Joshua's taking the steps necessary to make that happen. 
even without the full revelation of how God was going to bring his calling to bear. Listen, God may have a specific call on your life that you need to follow. Or God may have a general, more general calling upon your life. We often agonize over the first step when being obedient to God. But if we're being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we're seeking to be obedient to God, the direction of the first step is often less important than the decision to take the first step. Joshua didn't need to send spies. And that was irrelevant. He did not need to send spies, but that was the decision that he reached as a, as a consequence of what God had asked him to do. God may have said, Joshua, that was not necessary, but I'm glad you took action. I'm glad you took a step. I'm glad you chose to send those spies. The direction of that step is often less important than the decision to take the step. We simply have to demonstrate to God that we are serious about following him and that we want to trust him with our lives. The Bible makes it very clear that faith and works, faith and action go hand in hand. Paul makes the point that we are saved by faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We say, amen, we're all saved by faith. We appreciate that. We are grateful that we have a faith-based religion, and we don't find salvation in our ability to do good works. However, we keep reading in the Bible, and James makes the point that if we have faith, but we have no works to reveal our faith that James says our faith is dead. In James chapter 2, verse 17, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. What is dead faith? Dead faith takes no action. What would Joshua's faith look like if it had been dead faith? Joshua's faith, if it had been dead, would have been God says, You're going to take the promised land. And Joshua would have been there on the east banks of the Jordan River. And he would have sat down for how long? How long do you sit and don't move? How long do you sit and don't act? Well, well God said he was going to do this. Well, you're just going to sit there? I'm reminded in the passage in, in Nehemiah. Nehemiah has been called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they're facing all kinds of obstacles and all kinds of hostility. And Nehemiah's got a job to do. He's got to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But in spite of all that opposition, what does he do? He he tells his builders to put a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand. He tells them to get to work. Do what God's called you to do, but don't be stupid. Have a sword ready to fight off the enemy. Have a sword ready to, to do battle when it's appropriate. Dead faith doesn't take action. Instead, Joshua's faith is very much alive because he immediately begins to do what he believed was the best. Yeah, I think we live in a day today where there's a lot of quote-unquote Christians who have a very dead faith. They simply have no fruit in their life to show that they actually believe God. It is such a strange reality in which we find ourselves. We have churches filled with people who claim to follow Christ with their confession, but aren't too eager to follow Jesus with their actions. James goes on in chapter two to point out people like Abraham, Old Testament heroes, his works revealed his faith. His willingness to offer even his own son was a clear indicator of the condition of his heart. And people say, man, Abraham was crazy if he's willing to offer his son. No, Abraham was a man of faith because he believed that God could raise his son from the dead even if he went through with it. That's how much faith Abraham had in God's ability to keep his promises. James even points out Rahab. He says that her care for the spies revealed her heart's true condition. They were people who had faith and acted upon their faith. 
Maybe you're the person today who's reluctant to act on faith. Maybe you're agonizing over the first step. Do what makes sense. You know, when God called me into ministry, he didn't make his plan fully known to me at the time. So I did what made sense. I started with training and education. I was a student up here at UTC at the time. And I had a really clear conviction from God that I needed to go to a Christian university. It would have been easy to just finish and then go to seminary, but I had just a clear conviction that God was asking me to go to a Christian university. But here's the thing, there's no way I could have afforded that because private school's expensive. What I do, I applied anyway. I applied anyway. I told God I'd go, but he'd have to pay for it. And so I got a full academic scholarship at Shorter University. Same thing happened when I finished school and started seminary. But here's the thing, both times I wasn't sitting around waiting for the president of Shorter University to call me up and invite me to campus. God made a very clear call upon my life, something that was evident, that I was confident in, but I didn't just sit and wait. I took active steps to, to follow God in what it was clear he was calling me to do. I had to start the process, and then God was faithful to give me that Jericho moment. Maybe you're not called into vocational ministry. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to be busy for the kingdom of God. Maybe this morning you're unsure of just how God wants you to share your faith with a coworker. Maybe he hasn't revealed that sermon to you yet that you need to preach to them. How do you start sharing your faith with a coworker? Well, it's really complicated. It begins with, let me tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or, you know, I was at church yesterday and the pastor preached on and on and on and it never was gonna end. You know, it's amazing what those, those simple spiritual conversations can lead to. It's amazing that, that just a simple question or a simple statement can begin a, a, a remarkable conversation about the gospel. You say, well, God didn't give me the gospel presentation to give to my coworker. No, he gave you a conversation. And then God was able to use that conversation to change somebody's life. You don't know where God wants you to serve. I know I'm supposed to serve, but I don't know where I'm supposed to serve. This is not complicated. Serve somewhere that sounds interesting. When young people ask me what they want to, how, to, how to figure out a major in college, well, this is really hard. Major in what's interesting to you. Because God has probably put that inside of you already to, to want to begin to explore that and, and, and develop that in your life. Major in what sounds interesting to you. You don't know how God wants you to give. Give something. Don't sit around like a knot on a log waiting for God to tell you to get off the log. Start by getting off the log. That's a great first step. Maybe you're just uncertain of the things God wants you to do. You don't know what God wants from you. Most of the time, God wants from you what he's already shared with us in the word of God. And at the same time, he's given us some really important specifics. He also gives us a tremendous amount of freedom to navigate the waters of our own lives. There's, of course, some people with unique vocational callings. But if you're in college or high school and you're not sure what God wants you to do, that's okay. Think about it. Explore that. See what God has wired you to do and pursue things that feed that. But what if you're already in a career, raising a family, Say, I just don't know what God wants you to do. I can tell you some important things God wants you to do. God wants you to be a good husband or a wife. It's not complicated. He wants you to be a good husband or a wife. God wants you to be a good mother or a good father. God wants you to be a good employee. 
And as you do these things, as you go, he wants you to tell others about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We call that the Great Commission. That's what God wants from you. You say, I'm not called to be a pastor or a missionary or a worship leader or a youth pastor or anything like that. Well, if you're married, God's called you to be a good spouse. If you're a parent, God's called you to be a good parent. If you're a grandparent, God's called you to be a good grandparent. God's called you to those things. It is your responsibility to take steps to, to, to work those things out. It could be that you don't trust the Lord as much as you think you do. You may not trust like you say you do. I read a story of a dangerous takeoff on an aircraft carrier. Something went wrong, and the plane didn't get the velocity that it needed to get off the deck. Now, normally, radio transmissions between the pilot and the ship are blared across the flight deck, but this particular takeoff was silent as the plane struggled to stay out of the ocean. Finally, the plane leveled off and began to fly normally, and then the pilot broke the radio silent and said, okay, God, I'll take over from here. Sometimes that's how we act with our Christian faith. We operate our lives like that. During the rough patches, man, we're looking for the Lord. But when it's not so rough, we're trying to do it our way. We're not willing to walk by faith because our faith may not be all that strong. Like a muscle, it's something that we need to exercise. Because the reality is this. Faith is the nature of our walk with the Lord. That characterizes our walk with Jesus. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so most of our days with the Lord are days lived out in faith. But as we walk, we faithfully serve Jesus, we faithfully walk with Jesus each and every single day. Again, that's a, that's a Hobby Lobby sign, right? We walk by faith and not by sight. You know, that's something you put on barn wood and decorate your house with. But it's important that we get more than just the Hobby Lobby version of this passage. And so you keep going in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to the rest. This won't fit on a Hobby Lobby sign, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, Paul continues, and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. That's that song we've been singing. That's what the hymn of heaven is about. Let it be today. I want to sing the hymn of heaven with a host of angels. That's what we're asking for. I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But he goes on. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That doesn't fit on the barn wood above your dining room table. But what it does do is it reminds us that daily we walk in such a way where we are actively having the conversation between us and the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Are we pleasing Jesus? That's what Paul says here. Our aim whether we're home or away, this is not about football games, this is about whether we're here or whether we're with him, our aim is to please Jesus. And that's really a simple question that we should be asking ourselves daily. Lord, in my life today, in my actions today, in my words today, in my conversations today, in my steps today, in my parenting today, in my husbanding or wifing today, in my grandparenting today, in my neighboring today, in my employing today, in my employering today, am I pleasing 
you. You remember the old what would Jesus do bracelets? Back in the 90s, we'd wear those little, those little braided bracelets, and it was a reminder that anytime, we, anytime we, we had a decision to make, we'd look down at the bracelet and say, well, how would Jesus make this decision? I think this gets to that, but it takes it a little bit deeper, and it asks us to evaluate our own decisions in the light of what we know about Christ. Am I pleasing Jesus? Because that's ultimately what walking by faith is about. Am I pleasing Jesus? And the thing is, is you can ask that question literally about every single thing that you do. Uh, maybe not sleeping. It'd be hard to, you know, you're kind of unconscious, and so it's hard to ask it then. But every waking moment, am I pleasing Jesus? Because that's our aim. Our aim is to please Jesus. Have my actions, have my words, have my decisions, have my steps been pleasing to Jesus? Have I, in my walk with Christ today, put feet to my faith in a way that's pleasing Jesus? And that's a simple point of application for us today to take home. When we look at our lives, when we look at our relationships, when we look at the choices that we make on a daily basis, are we pleasing Jesus? Did Rahab please Jesus? Not by her actions, but certainly by her faith. Her actions were wrong. She lied. She, she, she bore false witness. And I'm sure that people like Mr. Olson would like to have a conversation about that. But she lied. I mean, she, broke, she broke one of the Ten Commandments. There's no doubt there. But by her faith, she was pleasing to the Lord because she, she honored the Lord. She served the Lord. She was faithful to the Lord. Did Joshua please God by what he did by sending those spies into the promised land? He sure did because he heard God's call and he took actions to explore God's call on his life. Are you pleasing Jesus in your day-to-day -day life? It's a question only you can answer. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit's there to help us along the way. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of women like Rahab and others in the Bible. I thank you for Joshua and for his willingness to, to be obedient. God, you didn't give him a full picture. You didn't tell him what was gonna happen. You said, this is the outcome, and he began to take steps to realize that outcome on his life. And I thank you, Father, for that courage. I thank you, Father, for that willingness to take steps to please you. God, I pray that this passage would indeed be a mirror for us that we would hold up in front of our faces, God, that we would ask ourselves the question, are we pleasing Jesus? With the decisions that we make, with the words that we speak, with the places that we go, with the actions that we take, are we pleasing Jesus? Lord, are we pleasing you and our families? Are we pleasing you and how we parent? Are we pleasing you and how we love our spouses? Are we pleasing you and how we love our neighbor? Are we pleasing you and how we serve your church? God, are we pleasing you in these things? It's our aim. God, give us answers in the ways that we can please you more. One day, we'll join the resurrection and we will join the host of heaven's angels and we will sing and worship and serve and, and for all eternity, we will live in a perfect place of righteousness with you. But until then, while we tarry on this earth, make us be pleasing to you. Father, we know that one of the greatest things we can do today to please you is to turn from sin and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
And maybe there's some today that the question they need to ask is not are they pleasing you in their lives because currently the Bible says they're dead and their trespasses and sin, and right now more than anything, they need to please you by trusting you as Savior and Lord. God, as we have this time of response, may they have the courage and the conviction to answer that question. Are they in a right relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ? Move in their hearts in this time of invitation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.